This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Listen to the Bite Size Business and Breakfast Best Bits from Thursday, March the 9th, where we spoke all things real estate and property with a team from Espas Real Estate. Clementine Munro's Associate Director and Head of Apartment Sales for Espas Real Estate, was in to talk about the possibility of another rate hike on uh, American interest rates. What does that mean for mortgages here in the region? But also just the number of new projects coming to market. Uh, how do you read the good from the bad? Samir Lakani was on hand to give us his thoughts. Uh, he's the MD of Global Capital Partners. To give his thoughts, that is, on yet another IPO that broke whilst we were on air for Alansari Exchange. We got all the details with Samir. We also had Andrew Tarbuck on hand, partner head of capital markets at Altamimian Company, and on hand to come into the studio, that is, uh, to talk to us about IPOs. In fact, he was in here to talk about the latest Salic numbers and how they reflected on the recent Salic IPO last year, but ended up talking a lot about the new Alansari Exchange IPO. So good to get his thoughts. Uh, was also reflecting on yet more comments from Jay Powell, the chair of the uh, Fed over in the US. Uh, he's been ahead. He's been giving comments uh, to Senate yet again about the prospect of more rate hikes over in the US, uh, interest rate hikes. Wanted to know what that would, what impact that, that could have, not just on the US economy, but also on uh, mortgages here in the UAE and further afield. And talking of the Fed, we also had Preston Caldwell joining us live from Chicago. Uh, Preston's from Morningstar Research to react on those comments from j We're taking a look this morning at what Jay Powell's comments to Congress could mean for us here in Dubai, most specifically the mortgage market, what it could mean for interest rates. He had his second day of testimony yesterday, overnight for us technically. He said pretty much what he said on the first day. This is the head of the Fed. Although inflation's been moderating in recent months, the process of getting inflation back down to 2% has a long way to go and is likely to be bumpy. As I mentioned, the latest economic data have come in stronger than expected, which suggests that the ultimate level of interest rates is likely to be higher than previously anticipated. If, and I stress that no decision has been made on this, but if the totality of the data were to indicate that faster tightening is warranted, we'd be prepared to increase the pace of rate hikes. So, pretty much repeating what he had said on day one, And as Preston Caldwell, chief U.S. economist from Morningstar Research, pointed out, he pretty much repeated what the Fed has been saying for a while. I think many people uh, spend a little bit too much time trying to dissect right now every remark from uh, Chairman Jay Powell and and the rest of the the, uh, Fed leadership and um, ignoring the fact that they've said consistently that they're going to remain data dependent. And so – in, in light of that, a lot's going to depend on over the next week, the new jobs report and the inflation report. And that's going to be the main driver of whether they hike uh, 25 basis points or 50 basis points in their next meeting and, and continue to hike after that. Yeah, but many have been hoping. But hope, as I'm reliably informed, is not a strategy. So there you go. Interest rates will go higher, potentially for longer and potentially at a higher rate than we saw last time with the 25 basis points. What state the labour market is actually in and what it might take to turn?
of course, we have to put everything in kind of the context of a multi-month trend. But I would say that, you know, last month we had non-farm payrolls, which is the main job measure in terms of hard data that we track, increased by 500,000 jobs in the U.S., which was an extraordinary rate of growth. Uh, if we see anything like that, this uh, upcoming release, then that would lean the Fed towards, I think, a 50 basis point rate hike. But that's not my base case expectation right now. I think job growth will slow down. And, and zooming out here, which we need to do, of course, uh, we do expect job growth to slow down uh, quite substantially over the next several quarters, which will really remove you know, one of the key data points that says the economy continues to be overheating. Right. Okay. So let's put that in some local context. We do have a space real estate on a little bit later to talk to us about what it means for mortgages. If we have a mortgage tipping point here in Dubai where people just say, no, that's it. I'm tapping out. I've got to wait until they calm down. That has pushed my budget too far. This is Jan Walters, though, economist at Emirates MBD, speaking about what those jobs numbers mean for interest rates and what interest rate rises could mean for us. A string of US labour market indicators published yesterday failed to show a significant softening in conditions. The so-called JOLTS report suggested that the number of private sector job openings fell to 10.8 million in January from 11.2 million in December. Despite this decline, job openings remain at historically high levels, with roughly 1.9 job openings for every unemployed person. The ADP private payroll data was also released yesterday. That showed a gain of 242,000 in February, an increase on the upwardly revised 119,000 recorded in January. The stronger than anticipated rise was driven by hiring in the leisure and hospitality and financial activities categories. Measures of wage growth moderated slightly, but remained at high levels, underscoring the continued tightness. The much-anticipated non-farm payroll data is due to be released tomorrow, with consensus expectations for a gain of 225,000. The outcome of this survey will be keenly watched by the Fed ahead of their next meeting. That's Jan Walters, economist at Emirates MBD. Who are we speaking to from Space Real Estate this morning, Tom? Uh, Clementine. Clementine Munroes will be joining us in just a few moments. Meanwhile, Serena Kelly sitting here very patiently. Morning, Serena. Morning, guys. Morning, Serena. Morning. Yeah, You've good. all been keeping a bit of an eye, including Georgia Tolley, who I know is broadcasting from there yesterday, at what's been happening down the road at the World Police Summit. That's right. Been a lot of points of discussion like cybersecurity. The regional heads of the International Association of Chiefs of Police, they've been convening, convening there at the summit. Um, and president of the association, Chief John Letney. Uh, and as you mentioned, the agenda was down there. Well, they were speaking with the agenda with Georgia Tolley. And when it comes to global crime, collaboration is vitally important. Crime doesn't stop at borders, be they city borders, uh, uh, state, province or national borders. Uh, cyber crime, transnational crime is very prolific these days and homeland security for all of our nations is something that we're all very focused on and, and very concerned about. Now we spoke about the new Gaith swap vehicle that's been added to the Dubai police fleet that's been on display down at the World Police Summit. So other breakthroughs in policing security and public safety have also been on show. So Dubai police have shone the spotlight on a project they conducted alongside Cambridge University. So to create a genome map specific to this region to help improve the accuracy of forensics. So Officer Mohammed Al-Rahma explained that using genome data along with AI can create an accurate photo of a suspect. 
So we use a certain uh, data with, uh, aligned with the AI. So uh, in terms of that, we can use the data and uh, with the bioinformatics and uh, generate a photo or a similar, let's say, skin color, eye color of the person. So uh, also canine units have also been a point of discussion, so much so they've had their own conference at the summit. And I know Georgia Tolley from the agenda uh, was quite uh, keen and interested on the canine units. Uh, Jay Malley, canine training manager at the Worldwide Canine Academy, explained that their role is still a crucial part of policing across the globe. So we would always say in our business, a well-trained dog team in the right place at the right time can change history. So we will never not want to bring a dog team into any scenario we have. We often view ourselves as that tip of that law enforcement or military spear. And they've really been highlighted of late, obviously, the devastating earthquakes in Turkey and Syria. And I mentioned uh, previously you had the Mexican uh, emergency services with their canine uh, dog team and Proteus, unfortunately, who passed away after uh, not before rescuing somebody from the rubble there. Um, but Tom, do you remember the UAE SWAT challenge? Do I remember it? <laughs> We're following ever so diligently do here in the it? business breakfast. What do you want to know about it? Well, this year's event saw Dubai Police field a women's team for the first time. Uh, they completed alongside the men's teams, coming in at 10th place out of the 55 teams taking part. Dubai Police's Lieutenant Latifa Abdulaziz Al-Salman highlighted something they managed to pull off that the men didn't. We were the only team with no penalty time. So I think uh, ladies are a bit more precise and uh, accurate with uh, shooting and uh, penalty. So the World Police Summit, last day today at the Dubai World Trade Center. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast, exclusively on DubaiEye1038.com. We are taking stock of what's happening in markets this morning. And we thought we had our IPO lawyer in this morning for one IPO, which we do. But in the last 22 minutes, we have a second, I swear. This IPO pipeline is like a bus service here. You wait 20 years, Andrew Tarbuck, maybe two, um, for a spate of IPOs. And then they all come along at once. Andrew Tarbuck is a partner, head of capital markets at the law firm Altamimi & Co. Thank you so much for joining me. Morning, Brandy. How are you? I'm good. If I sound a little rushed, it's because I am currently manically flicking through um, my emails and the newspapers because in the last few minutes, we do have the announcement coming out of the first IPO for 2023 for Dubai. And it is Alan Sari Financial Services. What can you tell me about this? Uh, very interesting. We we um, we knew that this was coming down uh, the pike. It's just the timing, and obviously, it's the official um, intention to float announcement from Alan Sari this morning, um, which is great news, obviously, for the Dubai financial market uh, and Dubai. They've uh, they've obviously seen the two IPOs announced down in Abu Dhabi, so um, this is great news for. Uh, for the DFM. But one real feature of this is it's uh, a private issuer. So Alan Sari is a private company. It's not government backed. So that's a real feature for the market. And one of the things that I think, you know, the, the whole sort of capital markets environment, we're looking for more private issuers after these big government IPOs to really sort of fill out the market, if you like. So that's it's a really good, uh, good news story. 
Yeah, let me tell you what we we do know. We know it's going to be 10% of the company's existing share capital um, that is going to be listed. Um, The retail tranche, um, which is going to be the majority of of those listening this morning, will run from the 16th of March to the 23rd. It'll run an extra day longer for qualified investors. Um, And like I said, the details are literally just trickling out now. What is particularly interesting, as you say, is that this seems to be the private companies doing exactly what authorities were, were hoping would happen um, with the launch of these these big IPOs, this this big dozen odd coming out of Dubai from seven, several government companies. Is it a case that the rising tide lifts all ships for this, Andrew? Yeah, absolutely. You know, you've got um, the performance of the exchanges themselves really, you know, is testament to, you know, the getting proper valuations and uh, the markets are, are, are running just exactly as they should do so you know if if you're sort of looking to to list on the dfm you know you know that all the structures are in place in terms of getting your um your your whole listing application approved it the the whole process is becoming just so much easier and so much more regularized that you know it's making it easier for these private issuers so you know in many respects all the boats are definitely rising what other kinds of private issuers would make the most sense um, to come to market now. People are saying the big family companies um, are those that we should see first off the uh, the blocks. What would you like to see? Yeah, I mean, it's it's one of those things. It's what investors are really looking to invest in. And traditionally here, it's been very heavily sort of financial services, real estate. So it's looking for diversity in your portfolio. So um, whether it's tech, um, there's usually a little more sort of risk in tech. They're usually sort of less less um, uh, life in the company. So they're, they're kind of new and unicorn. Um, so tech is certainly a space. But you look at something like Presight, that's tech-based AI. So, you know, I think I think it's about institutional investor demand as well. What what are real institutions actually looking to invest in? And they're looking to diversify portfolios. So, I mean, frankly, you know, from my perspective, any company from any sector should be looking to list if it's suitable. And, you know, it has proper management, proper financial track record. It wants to raise funds through the equity markets. So we should be kind of sector agnostic. Um, but, you know, encouraging all sorts of sectors is uh, is is the way that you know the whole capital market infrastructure should should move what about size though because size matters for this uh, size in terms of yeah no I, I agree because one of the things is that the SMA SME space needs to be encouraged and generally speaking institutional investors well, they tend to look at the you know larger companies with longer track record, but um, at the end of the day, you know this particularly in this environment, this country is driven by the SMEs. So you know it, it's slightly higher risk sometimes because you have less of a track record. Um, but you know the, the, the smaller companies can be uh, have more growth opportunity. So you know if you're a, if you're an investor, you can see more growth opportunity than say you know a company that that's been going in the same way for a long period of time. I've bumped into you in a number of hotel lobbies recently because you've been involved in a number Careful, of, Randy. of these <laughs> IPOs. Um, and, you know, someone tends to rent a ballroom in order to, to mm. make the announcement. Are you seeing a, a different type of international investor or more international investors as we get the the volume going here for these IPOs? Yeah, I mean, very much so. The, the That's the one real feature of 
the last year and this year is the institutional investor demand from the international asset managers and uh, uh, and potential investors. And it's it's been huge. I mean, you look at uh, Adnoc Gas, you know, it's a 2.5 billion offering, uh, dollar offering, and $25 billion worth of orders came from institutional investors abroad, which just shows that there's a lot of international money looking to invest here, which is a great testament to what's happening here and a real sort of indicator that our issuers and companies here are really highly regarded by global institutions who are looking to deploy cash into the region. And, you know, the UAE specifically, you know, you've seen two IPOs, Adnoc Gas and Presight, uh, already with, you know, the, well, the institutional demand is, has been huge for Adnoc Gas. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's a trend, though, that we've seen, say, from Barouge last year. Again, you know, the institutional demand was $20 billion. Uh, on Baruch for a two billion offering, which is, you know, huge multiples and great to see. I've got about one minute left with you. Amongst all of that, though, how do we make sure that it's still viable for retail investors to to buy in, um, that the allocation they're going to get for the amount that they put down with or without leverage is still going to make sense for them? Yeah, I mean... If you look, say, particularly with the size of some of these IPOs, the actual numbers of shares is huge. So even if you look at the percentages, they may seem small, say, you know, there's just, say, an 8% allocation to retail. But having said that, the numbers are huge, like in the number of shares. So if you also look at the the access that retail investors now have in terms of the way they can invest, you know, it's crazy. Like the options, you know, you see through ADX, you can do e-subscription, M-Bank, all the lead receiving banks and the receiving banks underneath that. The accessibility online, you know, makes it so much easier for retail. Thank you very much for joining us this morning. Unexpectedly discussing the Alan Sari Financial Services announcement that it will be um, the first IPO for the DFM for Dubai of 2023. That announced just as Andrew was walking into the studio. Andrew Tarbuck, partner and head of capital markets at the law firm Al Tamimi & Co. Thank you so much for joining us on the Business Breakfast this morning. Thanks, Brandy. Pleasure. Catch up on the business headlines with the Bite Size Business Breakfast. The oil market. Markets might be a little bit boring this morning, but I tell you what is interesting, and that is the first IPO announcement for Dubai for 2023. Out at about seven o'clock this morning, very conveniently, just as we had an IPO lawyer walking into the studio and sitting down in front of a microphone. Uh, Andrew Tarbuck has been giving us the, the bigger picture of structural look. We're going to look at Alan Sari now as an investment, and we're exceptionally pleased to be joined on the line uh, by one of our favourite market watch this morning. Samir Lakani is the Managing Director of Global Capital Partners. Samir, good morning. It is lovely to speak to you. Good morning. Thank you. And once again, I have to thank you for making yourself available at short notice because um, we've had about an hour and a half to digest the very, very small print that has come out from Alan Sari Financial Services. Alan Sari Exchange, a lot of people will know them as. This is our first Dubai IPO for the year. 10% of the company's existing share capital. What will people be weighing up when they decide whether or not to invest in Al-Ansari? The, the first and, and the most obvious thing is that they're going to look at the valuation. That is, as of yet, not announced. I think there's a press conference uh, later on this morning, I think at about 9.30. We may get some more details at that time. 
But as a brand, we already know Al Ansari is is very well known. Uh, their, their branch network is extensive, and in terms of market share, you know, it, they they uh, they have 2.6 percent of global outward personal remittances and 38 percent of exchange remittances in the UAE. So they're they're very well known, and. Uh, it's it's a, it's an opportunity for uh, uh, retail as well as institutional investors to tap into the remittance market, which is a significant part of the UAE economy given the expatriate composition makeup. One of the points that Andrew Tabak, the lawyer, made earlier this morning was that this is notable not just because it's the first Dubai IPO of 2023, but also because it's the first private company to kind of follow our government, semi-government IPO train that we have had going on for the past nine months or so. What have private companies been waiting for, Samer? What does this tell us about the state of the market now? I think there is growing confidence on, on, on the part of issuers uh, given the response that we have seen from uh, investors with regards to the IPOs that have taken place in 2022 and 2023, we know there are a few other private sector IPOs that are in the pipeline already. Uh, but yes, there is growing confidence, not only in the fact from the private sector that uh, that they're confident to, to announce, but uh, moreover, also have concurrent announcements. We're, we're now we're now entering a period where we're getting concurrent announcements of IPOs where investors have more of a choice uh, and that incre- that indicates a growing sense of confidence uh, about uh, the liquidity uh, that is that is now entering the capital markets yeah exactly we've even got a slight crossover between the uh, pre-site IPO dates and the uh, Alan Sari. Let's look at the two different types of pricing that we've got between those two IPOs, actually. We've got the pre-site IPO um, has a, a fixed price, if you like. Alan Sari looks like it's going to be a book-building process. What are the pros and cons for, for companies and for investors of, of both of those approaches? You can argue either way for, for investors. Uh, a fixed price gives investors the certainty. Do they know what they're getting in? The metrics are there. They can calculate if they want the dividend yield or whatever upside potential that they're that they're calculating based on the valuations a book building approach gives uh the issuer slightly more flexibility to uh raise more capital uh should they decide to do so uh both approaches have their 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 advantages i think in the final analysis uh, in terms of what we have seen empirically both in dubai and in abu dhabi the oversubscription levels have been tremendous, regardless of which of the two approaches the issuers have gone with. Well, you mentioned dividends there, and like many others, Al Ansari have, have laid out their dividend plans, playing out twice a year, uh, talked about the amount that they hope to be able to distribute going forward. How key is that still for investors? Are we still dividend-based rather than growth-based? I think you can have both uh, the the Salic IPO, the Empower IPO. That that indicates that you can have a high cash flow payout ratio to investors with the growth as well. Globally, we've seen this kind of shift where dividends have uh, now that have been announced in the year 2022 have hit a record. Uh, we are more dividend based in this country. There is no doubt about that, and in this region. Uh, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. It, it indicates a value-centric approach. And, 
yeah, investors will be looking to uh, to tap into that with the with with the likes of Alansari. Richard's argument is that as we get into more tech-based stocks, we will start becoming more growth-focused, holding up uh, the performance of Bayonet in Abu Dhabi. Um, and then Presight, of course, is, is Big Data AI, another tech company. Are we expecting that focus to, to shift with the tech market coming to market? There's, there's no doubt that growth comes at the cost of dividend payouts. That's, that's a global phenomenon. What's important to note is that in the UAE, we didn't have this choice in the capital markets. Only recently with, with Bayanat, which, by the way, was the world's best performance single-day uh, run uh, on the day of their IPO. They were up 5x, uh, and Presight and others from G42. Investors now have that choice, which was, which was, uh, which was the role of the government officials all along, they wanted investors to have a choice uh, to choose between the more traditional infrastructure or dividend-oriented plays and move towards the more, uh, you know, the, the more tech-focused plays that uh, that are now coming to market. You're always going to get this trade-off between dividends and uh, and uh, and capital growth, but uh, I think it's going to be a while before we start to see the tilt uh, moving away from dividends. Uh, in this in this market, we've got one minute left with you, Sama. What will you be listening for over the next week or so from Al Ansari as to their future plans, as to their growth plans? What should retail investors be listening for as well? Apart from valuation, Al Ansari's Al Ansari operates. It, their business model is very easy to understand. Uh, where they are now making inroads. Uh, with uh, with some of the reforms that have been announced by the government, so for example, uh, what they're doing with the wage protection system, what they're doing uh, with uh, with some of these prepaid cards, uh, and as they move to diversify away from uh, personal uh, outward remittances, uh, as the shape structure of the UAE economy changes, how they're able to keep up with that and uh, maintain their profitability ratios, which is astonishingly high at sixty percent. Currently, uh, that's what investors will be looking at uh, uh, for for Al Ansari. Uh, they're already in Kuwait; they're, they're completing their acquisition, and of course, uh, whatever growth plans that they have for the rest of the region will be a second factor to look at. Well, thank you so much for speaking to us this morning. Samir Lakani is managing director of Global Capital Partners. Investments go up and investments go down. Before putting your hard-earned money into any investment, Dubai Eye 103.8 advises you to always do your own background research. Ensure you're informed to navigate the market and any potential pitfalls. Just the highlights. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Where we have been discussing mortgages this morning on the back of Jay Powell's comments about interest rates. But for those who can, there is a way to avoid them, or at least for the first half of your sale. You might not have any choice. And that is buying off-plan. A flurry of off-plan launches uh, falling into email inboxes at the moment. But how do you start to evaluate them? Clementine Munro is still in the studio with us this morning. Associate Director and Head of Apartment Sales at Espace Real Estate. Clementine, I would say that the amount of new off-plan launches that I am being emailed on a daily basis is probably at a decade high. I'm averaging about three a day. What's driving this sudden boom now? I think the reality is Dubai's population is increasing. 
um, at a faster rate than we have housing for. And so I think it's purely that off-plan developers see that there is a need, you know, to produce more houses to keep up with the demand of the population. Does it mean that in three or four years we'll have a glut? I don't believe so. If Dubai continues growing at the rate that is anticipated and at the rate that has been performing historic, uh, historically, then I think we won't. What does it mean, though, um, all of this new stock coming on board for existing property and its valuation going forward? I think we're seeing a bit of what we saw in London, which is areas like Dubai Marina, Dubai Downtown, some of the existing villa communities. There physically isn't space for them to get any bigger. Um, And so I think what we'll see is properties there hold their value. But yes, for some of these new communities where they're delivering vast amounts of houses in locations that are a little more challenging from a kind of commuter and lifestyle point of view, I don't foresee them being able to hold their value as well as some of those areas that are already established closer to the centre of the city. So how does one start evaluating these off-plan offers then? They're all very shiny. There are a lot of brochures and floor plans doing the rounds. Uh, What should buyers be looking at? I think what's important to consider is, is it purely for investment or are you going to live in it? If you're going to live in it, look at the developer's track record of delivering on time. How important is it going to be to you to move in on the date that they have said to you in that brochure? If you are an investor, are you looking purely for capital appreciation? Are you looking just to buy and you'll sell it as soon as it's ready? Or are you looking to for an income generating asset? And therefore, what is the brochure or the developer promising in terms of those different aspects? Some of the pricing schedules are pretty aggressive um, in terms of basically having to put down 90% of the money before handover. How do you even figure out if you can afford to do it? I mean, I think what you have to do is have a, have a look at obviously your current financial environment and in line with the project when it's due to hand over. But what we see is a lot of resales happening at sometimes less than OP because people have got into financial trouble um, before they can... OP being offering price. Sorry, offering price, exactly, or original price that they, they purchase the property at. Um, and people have got themselves into trouble. And some developers um, don't let you flip the asset until you've put in X. And that can be a real challenge. So I think the first conversation you need to have with yourself is, can you do the X amount until you can flip it? And, and that's the kind of stage one that you definitely need to know you can do. And I said there that, you know, you're buying this without a mortgage, but mortgages are available for some developers when you reach a certain point. What kind of homework do you need to do on that front? I think what you need to do is also not all banks lend on all developers. So I think what's really important is to have a look at your risk appetite. Uh, do you want to pay a little more for a very well-known developer and perhaps you know, achieve a slightly uh, more modest return? Or are you going to go all in uh, and know that you've got the capital reserve somewhere to pay for it? Should it be delayed or should you not be able to get lending on it? What kind of small print do you need to be examining on the delay front and and what you get if if things don't go according to plan? I think, you know, the contracts frustratingly are a little bit standardised. So even if you were not to like something in the small print, it's not really to say you could change it. It's a bit of a like it or lump it environment. So I think what's really important is to do your due diligence on the developer and their historic performance or look heavily into the kind of capital environment of newer developments just to check that they have either a track record in another country. We're seeing a lot of developers come from countries where they've been successful before, Turkey, India, and coming to develop here. And the rest, really, I suppose, again, it just comes down to your appetite for risk. Well, the amenities are getting a bit crazy as well. This week alone, I have been offered yoga domes, crystal lagoons, kayaking clubs, and snorkeling in an underwater museum. Uh, And that's Yeah, on different off-plan projects. What are we seeing happen to the community 
fees for these projects? Well, actually, community fees aren't getting too high because normally the developers that offer all of these kind of magical and slightly wild sounding um, additions and facilities are building so many homes. So there's apartments, there's villas, you know, there's commercial offering on site and all of that, the, the, the sheer abundance of units is keeping that facility slightly lower but we'll see what happens often there's an attractive price that could that could reel you in and as we see in time the maintenance of some of these wonderful offerings we'll have to see how that affects it in the future. Clementine Munro is Associate Director and Head of Apartment Sales at Espace Real Estate thank you so much for joining us on the show this morning. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.